But this was just the sort of dirty trick that history plays to confound historians and the architects of grand policy. But the 20th century had also opened on a note of melancholy and uncertainty. Britain, as the Victorian age ran to its end, was subjected to unheard-of humiliations at Ladysmith and Spion Cop in the Boer War, which had broken out the previous October. It would be a year before the British military could reassert its superiority. In the Far East, fear and confusion among Europeans spread with the outbreak of the Boxer Rebellion, while in the mid-Pacific, the new American imperialism put down its marker by annexing Hawaii. In England, on January 22, 1901, the old queen, who had stamped her name on most of the previous hundred years, died. The uncertainty in every Briton's mind was whether, without Victoria, things would go on as before, pursuing their same comfortable course. Reassuringly, a vast area of the inhabitable globe was tinted a friendly English pink. In terms of mass, the only area to compete, generally shaded a cold green, was the Russian Colossus, which stretched unmanageably from the eastern frontiers of Germany to Vladivostok. But apart from the little-seen skirmishes in the Great Game regularly taking place on the barren fringes of Central Asia, where the pink and the green met, backward Russia presented little threat. Of comfort was the fact that, almost as the old queen's life ebbed to its close, the unpleasant Boer War was ending. Britain, having suffered a series of shocking defeats inflicted on her regulars by a bunch of armed farmers, had emerged with no distinction, moral or military. Humiliating reverses had been dished out with an ease similar to that administered at Concord, Massachusetts, over a century earlier. Jealous nations among Kipling's lesser breeds, such as Kaiser Wilhelm II's Germany, could not help sitting up and taking notice. And so, too, across the world, on the fringe of China and the Pacific, did the newly emerged nation of Japan. In June 1900, the European powers, comfortably established in their concessionary enclaves carved from the decaying body of China, were rocked by the outbreak of the Boxer Rebellion. A sudden eruption of the suppressed Chinese proletariat, outraged by the unequal treaties that the foreign devils had imposed and led by the so-called Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists, massacred hundreds of Europeans in Peking, Beijing, including the German ambassador. Overstretched in Africa, Britain found itself having to fall back for help on a new ally, Imperial Japan, an unknown quantity only recently released from its centuries-long hibernation behind its self-imposed lacquer screen. Within a few months, the Boxer Rebellion's leaders were executed in Peking, and the rebellion ended with the signature in September 1901 of the Peking or Boxer Protocol, which permitted the powers to resume their bad old greedy ways. The difference was that now there was a new player on the scene, Japan. Some with the gift of prognostication might have deemed that the lid of Pandora's box had been lifted. In terms of the technology of warfare, 
Though undetected at the time, there were certainly pointers in the century following the epic struggle against Napoleon with which the 19th century had begun. There was the American Civil War, as well as various minor wars, to suggest what modern soldieries could do to each other on a land battlefield. But since Trafalgar in 1805, there had been no major battle at sea to suggest that warfare there too may have evolved. Ever since the invention of the cannon and its installation aboard ship, since before the Spanish Armada of 1588, the basics of naval warfare had remained little changed. Great wooden ships, studded with massive guns and propelled by acres of sail, hammered away at the enemy at almost point-blank range, from three hundred yards at most, until one or the other was reduced to a mastless hulk or blew up. It was all about the weight of the broadside. Tactics, too, had little altered. Every